welcome to the Alpha Academy podcast. The Alpha Academy has been developed in partnership with Betsy Cadwallader University Health Board and is part funded by the Welsh Government, led by Bangor University. Hi everyone, welcome to today's podcast. I'm Tracy O'Neill, a lecturer at the Alpha Academy, and today's episode is all about what makes an exceptional learning organisation. I'm really pleased to have the psychologist Dr. Johan Rees on today's episode. He's created an award-winning learning organisation. So a really big welcome to you, Johan. Thank you, Diolch. Diolch. Uh, could you just start, start by telling us a little bit about sort of what, what it means? What is this award-winning learning organisation that you've created with Cycle? Well, it all started many years ago. I was a psychologist in a local authority. And as a psychologist, I was interested in change and how how I could help people change. And um, as I became more and more interested in that, I realized this thing called systems. I can help more people change by building or helping leaders build systems. So I became interested in helping organizations help lots of people. Uh, if that makes sense, rather than me working with individuals all the time. So that led me to um, founding, establishing Cycle. And um, since then, we've been developing work with colleagues across Wales in um, social health and education sectors to help them build their own learning organisation, which is all about embracing um, staff contribution and helping them feel that they have an important voice in that organization that's really important isn't it that people feel that they feel valued in an organization and they have a voice so what do you what are the what are the values do you think that a learning organization needs to have i i think um you know we're all people and wherever we are you know whether we're in wales or england scotland or or further afield abroad even i think values are pretty much generic in the sense that we all need the same things as Maslow would say um but I think specifically to build a learning organization um within for example a health and social context I think uh, collaboration is an important value uh, that we encourage people to work together rather than feel isolated and work individually sometimes of course you have to work by yourself to get a job done and where possible we'd encourage collaborative work Innovation is another um, value that's really important. And we we use innovation in place of improvement. So we're interested in how people get better, how we improve, not just in what we improve. So that's innovation. Openness is important so that we can share how we feel, so that people feel safe to share and speak. And that's all around that thing that we call psychological safety. And I think the last value, of course, we could talk about lots of others like respect and care, of course. But I think organizationally, the last value that's really important, particularly for leaders, is ownership and replacing ownership, uh, replacing accountability with ownership. So where we see traditional own uh, ac- accountability, you know, people looking over my shoulder to check that I've done something and holding me to account, we we want within a learning organization people to feel a sense of ownership that they're doing it well once first time for the right reasons and then we do away with if possible the need for accountability because we own it so i think those are the values we'd look to to um to really promote within a learning organization 
Yeah, they sound that sounds really interesting, isn't it? That it's about sort of teaching organizations to embrace these values and um and to I, I guess it, to um train their staff to have these values as well. So what how does coaching and mentoring, if we think about how to train our staff in these organizations, how do the principles of coaching and mentoring fit into that? Uh, well, coaching and mentoring, uh, like many things in a learning organization, is actually not seen as an add-on. So that's the first thing to say. When in a traditional organization, maybe it would be seen as an add-on. You know, we coach and mentor here, and we do it at 5.30. Um, in a learning organization, it would be an outcome. So we'd expect coaching conversations and mentoring to happen as a product of the culture, which which is a bit of a you have to get your head around a little bit maybe but if we were devoted to building an organization that had those values we talked about earlier collaboration innovation ownership then it would follow that our conversations would be coaching style in other words me asking you what ideas do you have for what solutions could you propose for how would it look when it's improved so those those conversations would become a natural outcome of the culture we've built. So that's that's the most fundamental difference, I think, in a learning organization is that coaching, like other things, for example, well-being, uh, isn't perceived as an add-on. It's perceived as, as an outcome or product or, or an indication of the health of the organization. So, for example, if we didn't have coaching conversations, then it would be feedback for us that actually our organization wasn't that learning after all. So that's how we see it. Yeah, I just picked up on your point then about sort of creating the right culture. You know, I mean, I remember jobs I've had in the past where, you know, um, every organization has a different culture, doesn't it? And so how do we sort of embrace this idea that, um, how do we create the right cultures in organization, if that makes sense? How do you... (laughs) How can leaders start to think about creating the right kind of culture with their staff? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first thing to say there is that we all, all organizations have a culture. It's whether or not it's intentional or not. And I think that some organizations find themselves with a culture that's evolved or grown unintentionally. And, and what we're after here is, is what we call intentional culture design. So we set about building the culture we want intentionally. And for that, we have to have, of course, a framework uh, that we're working on and a vision that we're working towards. So leadership, for example, would need to be clear about what the vision is, what the mission is, what our values are, and some other things as well that are really useful in what we call a core framework, i.e. our culture manifesto. Things, for example, like what are our design principles? In other words, how do we organize work within this health or social care organization? How do we organize the work? And things to do with pledges. So what are our pledges as staff? In other words, what do we promise to do uh, to support each other and our patients or clients? Um, and other things to do with what are our or who are our inspirations and influences? In other words, what's our evidence base for building this culture? And lastly, that translates into what's our offer that we are making. So we might be a service and social care. We still have to, we're not necessarily competing because we're not 
commercial. However, it's really helpful for the client or service user to have an idea what what it is that we're offering, so that they can make a choice and they can actually you know uh, support us in that mission. So that's those are real practical steps that leadership would have to undertake very early on to start designing that culture. And once we have that done on paper, of course, that would involve conversations with staff, wouldn't it? And maybe service users to design that initial manifesto. But once we have that, then starts the work about how do we embed this? How do we see this delivered through our systems and structures and our behaviors? And that that's exciting work as well, of course. And that, that doesn't happen overnight, by the way, Tracy, you know, people think, oh, we can write this up tonight, you know, and then it's all job done. You know, we've got a nice poster screensaver. But what we're talking about here is writing that manifesto and then, you know, doing a good piece of work around actually embedding it over maybe two or three years. Uh, that's the kind of length of time we talk about supporting organizations to make sure that we then have those. And and it's hard. It's not easy. Um, you know, and it's okay to fail and make mistakes. And for leadership in particular, it's okay to say we didn't get that right. And what we're going to do next time is um, along that journey so that staff don't feel that, um, you know, <clears throat> they're going to get it right first time because we aren't. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. I really like that. You know, I suppose it's embracing that journey of change because that does take time and you do make mistakes, don't you? But I guess if the if the leaders really have the intent and they want to put the effort in to make that change, it, it can it can be tremendous, can't it? So just well, what in some of the work that you do, you talk about solution oriented. What what does that mean in relation to some of this? Okay, so one of our design principles in Cycle, because we have, I've mentioned design principles a moment ago, how we organize work within an organization. One of our design principles is to be solution oriented. Um, another one is to be lean. You might have heard about the team term lean that's come from, uh, from industry. But in, in solution oriented, uh, what we're looking at there is how can we describe what we do in a way that puts focus on building solutions rather than problems. Now, the one thing that sometimes people uh, believe that when we talk about solution-oriented or solution-focused work is that we are only interested in solutions and we aren't interested in problems. But I think that's the delight of solution-oriented work is that when we do listen to problems, when we do encounter problems organizationally or individually, Listening to the problem, engaging and understanding the problem actually is part of the solution. So the, it, what I like particularly about solution-oriented work is that it's not dismissive of problems. It's not disrespectful of people who are really suffering, if you like, be that member staff or public. Um, and engaging with that hurt and suffering is part of change happening. It's not an inconvenience. It's not a, you know, we don't have to tap the table impatiently as an organization. It's part of change is that we all need to be heard. And solution orientism embraces that fully. So we listen to the problem and we develop the solution, but only when it's respectful to do so. So that's in a nutshell is what solution oriented is. And we can see that play out in all our systems. So we have listening systems, responsive systems, where we support each other in our, in our, uh, in our structures and the way we speak and meet our meetings, our consultations, 
would all reflect that solution-oriented principle that I've described. That's really, really interesting. Do you, I was just thinking as you're talking, do you think that some some of the organisations in health and social care, do you think that sometimes the leaders or the people that work at that high level, do you think that they're afraid? Do you come across in some of your case studies are some leaders are sort of afraid to embrace those problems, those challenges? Are they afraid to talk about? Because we know, don't we, from the literature and the evidence, a lot now is saying that, you know, you have to, you, ha- you know, a strength is actually recognising when you're weak as well, isn't it? And recognizing the problems that you have and, and speaking about those problems. And, you know, that's the challenge, isn't it, about overcoming the problems, but also to talk about them. Do you think that that's a barrier to some organizations that they don't want to talk about their problems? I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, when we look at the therapeutic services that we provide, one of the first things we ask clients to do practically is to admit that they have a problem. <laughs> we we ask that of them, but when we look at ourselves, actually, we don't apply it so often. But I think, it, you know, that goes back to that what we talked about earlier when you asked about values around ownership is about saying, you know, this is this is the situation and part of that is my doing um, or all of that is my doing and taking ownership of that. And then that opens up an honest dialogue then, doesn't it, about what people and what I can do differently. But oftentimes our ego gets in the way, Tracy. We all have one. Um, yeah. <laughs> our, our ego that sits on our shoulder tells us, oh, Johan, don't fess to that. Uh, you're going to drop yourself in it. Or don't don't say don't say that's a problem because you're going to take on too much work. But that's that's my ego looking after me. And putting me first and not the team first, mm. not the organization first. And we know we know that the impact of leaders in particular taking ownership and being open is that people follow suit. Mm. People will do the same down down the ranks, you know, and up and down the chain of command. People will follow suit if they see leaders doing that because they'll feel safe. Uh, but if as leadership, for example, you mentioned, if we aren't being open and honest about the problems that we're facing as an organization and as a team, then we can't expect colleagues to be doing that. And in a learning organization, that's a really important piece of work, as a matter of fact, Tracy. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it's, it's. I suppose it's, it's, it's trying to have those difficult conversations because they can be quite difficult. But you know, from my experience, you know, the pro- the progress you make in life is through difficult conversations. It's about being honest and open about uh, some of the challenges that you have to overcome. So, what what could we? How could we support managers and leaders in health and social care? What do you think? I mean, I know you um, you have a framework, but how how could we sort of signpost today from this podcast if a leader was listening to this today and they wanted to know, okay, I want to have these conversations. I want to change my organisation. What could they do? What are the steps that they could do? Well, I think you mentioned earlier, what are the barriers to it? I mean, we we can all list, you know, money and time uh, as the two key barriers. However, we know that learning organizations across the world, world aren't, aren't always the most profitable in the sense that they don't have more money necessarily to do it. Neither... Neither do they shut at 10 p.m. You know, they all they don't work longer to become a learning organization, but they certainly have a better workforce and they develop more efficient and effective services. So the evidence is there to support this. And I think one of the key barriers is in particular leadership's underestimation of 
the importance of a learning organization and the impact that has on performance and staff well-being. So first of all, they need to be convinced this is a good alternative to traditional models, I think. And there's plenty of evidence for supporting that. Then when they feel that they are convinced that this is something that, that can really support their clients and their staff, is to look for the framework that best suits them. And there are, there are several frameworks out there. Unfortunately, there's too much theory, I suppose, if you were to Google it. Uh, and in Psycho, our, our framework is simple yet comprehensive. And it walks an organization and leadership through the steps, through build, embed, and sustain, but how they go they can go about doing this. Um, so there's plenty of information out there, but it starts with, as you mentioned, a commitment to wanting to do it in the first place and understanding its many, many benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it, it's it's so interesting, actually. So I was just wondering if if we have a manager <clears throat> listening today, I mean, one of the first steps they could do, I suppose, is is start to do some courses themselves, maybe some of the workshops, some of the yeah. things that you provide as well in your organization, and then maybe to take some of those ideas back. Would you recommend something like that? Yeah, for sure. As a, as a manager, of course, you need to learn a little bit yourself first, perhaps. So the work that you're doing there, the courses that you provide at the Alpha Academy would be an ideal starting point for them to access those courses and then to take those back to their staff encourage their staff to go on the same courses, their colleagues, their peers to go on the same courses, to learn a bit more and then open up the dialogue and start start deciding then what their framework is and next step. Um, that, that would be my advice, really. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Okay, well, we're near the end, but I just wanted to, um, <laughs> sorry, ask you just, um, do you have any case studies or some positive examples of where some of the work that you've worked with leaders, where it's really worked in the past? I know you've done an awful lot of work with schools and obviously you've worked at Bangor University as well, but do you have any examples or just really good case studies that you could comment on maybe? Well, I specifically, I can I can list many, 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 but I think generically what I would say is, it doesn't matter what the size of your organization is. In this case, size doesn't matter. <laughs> so okay. it, it's about, you know, whether you're a big or small organization, we worked with uh, local authorities, you know, um, health boards, health trusts. Uh, um, we worked with a college with uh, uh, 20,000 students, West Suffolk College. Uh, that's a huge staff body. Um, and we've also worked with very small entities, small teams, psychological services with four psychologists. And it doesn't matter what size you are, because sometimes that can be a barrier in the mind, can't it? So I think in all those is is start with your commitment to wanting to build a learning organization, work with your team, build a framework, and you see the benefits for not only your staff, but also for your service users or patients. Oh, that's wonderful. It's been so interesting talking to you. Thank you so much, Johan. So just to sort of finish off, if any of our listeners are interested in finding out more, they can contact Johan if that's okay and the work that he does at Cycle and um, go onto the website or you can contact us at the Alpha Academy if you want to know some of the workshops or courses that we provide to help your organisation become this exceptional learning organisation. So thank you so much for today's talk, Johan. Pleasure. Thank you very much and uh, we'll speak again soon. Bye. Bye. For regular updates on the Alpha Academy, including upcoming workshops and courses, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Alpha Academy.
or visit our website www.banger.ac.uk forward slash Alpha Academy.